Hello, this is Alex here. Just a very quick note before we get officially started. Next Tuesday, the 22nd of February, I'm going to be in New York and we'll be doing a live Bunga event, partly as a belated North American launch of the end of the end of history, and also to have a bit of a chat. And uh, Adam Tooze will be participating and will be debating the end of the end of history, the rise of anti-politics and life after the pandemic. And then afterwards, we'll be heading to a bar nearby uh, to have some drinks afterwards. So it'd be great if you joined us. It's Tuesday, the 22nd of February in New York at the People's Forum in Midtown. And there's links to tickets in the show notes here. So we hope to see you there. Really look forward to meeting you all. But now on with this month's three articles. Hello, dearest patrons. It's another three articles from BungaCast, the global politics podcast at the end of the end of history. You probably already knew that by now, uh, but it's uh, Thursday, the 10th of February. And uh, as usual, we are each bringing an article to discuss. There's a distinct North American political theme uh, to our articles this week. Um, but first, hello, George. Hello, Philip. How are we? <laughs> Very, very hello. well. Thanks for hello. asking. Hello, Alex. Hello, yeah. George. I need to. I need to. What I need to nail is the is the kind of like hello Newman thing from Seinfeld, and just do the hello, hello, George. Alex, <laughs> hello whore. Yeah, exactly. You could. Um, you were doing it a bit like Shatnery, like hello, Phil. Hello, George. Oh anyway, yeah, that's true. Yeah, uh, you could do a different character every on. week and do it really badly. Anyway, we won't be doing that. Um, so the first article, well, I guess I'm going first. Um, it is an article in the New York Times. It's an opinion piece called Hawks are standing in the way of a new Republican Party. So I'm just going to say who the authors are because it's worth uh, worth explaining. Uh, Sorab Amari, who is a, a contributing editor at uh, the American Conservative magazine, which is, again, uh, a conservative magazine which has always been very anti-hawkish and much more isolationist. Um, you have Gladden Pappen, who is one of the founders of American Affairs, who uh, American Affairs, uh, as I'm sure you're aware, we've had the editor, uh, Julius Krein, on before, is also uh, a magazine which in a, a quite heterodox inhabits sort of more or less that sort of space of a more kind of nationalist, anti-war, communitarian, uh, conservative thought. And Patrick Deneen, a political theorist you might know, influenced by uh, de Tocqueville, by Lash, um, and his book, Why Liberalism Failed, um, kind of made a splash when it came out a couple of years ago. Um, so these are kind of three, I guess, intellectual heavyweights, at least in those sorts of circles, um, on the conservative side, but fighting a battle for a kind of new nationalist or populist uh, Republican Party. And their argument um, is interesting because, I mean, it's, it's directed, it seems to be directed it's published in the, although it's published in the New York Times, seems to be directed at sort of populist members of the GOP, congressmen, and so on, and against the the hawks. And you know they have a couple of jibes even at some of these more uh, nationalist figures in the Republican Party who, despite their supposed political commitments, are still cheering on, for example, war with Russia and saber rattling against Putin and so on. And they're making an argument that we shouldn't be doing this. And they base this argument in a sort of intellectual history of uh, two different strands in the United States um, in regards to how America sees itself. You have a conservative vision and a liberal vision. The conservative vision sees 
America as an exemplary republic, that America should just perfect its republic and thereby stand as a shining example to the rest of the world. And then you have the more crusader model where um, the United States' role is to indoctrinate or spread liberalism throughout the world um, through the force of arms. Um, and that this, this division between exemplary and crusader broadly mapped on, used to map on to conservative versus liberal, that the conservatives more reluctant to engage in warfare and engage abroad, whereas the liberals were more um, effectively, more saber rattling, more uh, advent militarily adventurous. Um, but that this is now revised um, and it has reversed, excuse me, that basically, as everyone will know, it's been the Republicans who have maybe at least until recently been the more pro-war, you know, the neoconservative movement that uh, arrayed around and behind George W. Bush was, of course, a conservative movement. It was within the Republican Party who were the most sort of pro-war. Of course, now we know that it's the Democrats probably who are in some ways because of their kind of uh, supposedly liberal views are who are the most pro-war. Anyway, they give this intellectual history um, as a way of making uh, an argument in favor of two pillars. One is restraint in terms of international affairs. And secondly, um, bolstering domestic industry, achieving energy independence, all in uh, in the aim of achieving national development, right? So this is, this is the sort of vision that they have. Um, the, what is interesting, and I, one line I want to cite before I bring you guys in, is uh, which I thought was was well placed, is criticizing the contradictions in the sort of neoliberal Republicans' view, and the neoliberal Republicans are more pro-war, um, which is that the, these Republicans, or excuse me, not really the neoliberal Republicans, but more so some of the populists, the populists who get drawn onto the pro-war side, is that what they are actively pushing is the integration of ever more geographic space into the same socioeconomic order they find so oppressive at home. So basically, you know, if, you, if it basically woke, woke corporations and military engagement abroad spreads the kind of uh, form of whatever, woke neoliberalism abroad, but yet these are the same people who are fighting woke neoliberalism at home, and there's a contradiction there. And so they're basically trying to make an appeal to these conservatives to be genuinely conservative. Yeah, I mean, so one thing, just <clears throat> hearing you talk that talk it through a little bit, was I, I realized that, you know, American models of politics are, there's quite a lot of animals in there. You have the elephants and the donkeys, you have the hawks and the, the doves. Hmm, I wonder what that, I wonder what that means. Um, but really make more, you think, yeah. It really did make me think. Um, but I, I think, the, you know, one of the things, that's captured really well in the the article is that contradiction in contemporary american conservatism this kind of um or <clears throat> some parts of it the, the parts which i think the authors are particularly critical of kind of lib liberalism abo abroad and anti-liberalism at home it's that really kind of stark division between like a, a certain um and i guess you know that is question as to whether that consistency inconsistency can continue between having a really an increasingly anti hyper liberal um kind of home policy and a foreign policy which is driven by um liberal in imperialism of, of various sorts no and i think that was really nicely brought out i was very taken with this piece for a number of reasons the first was i thought it was remarkably politically bold um, in two respects, it's politically bolder than the left anti-imperialism. They go further. 
um, there and politically bold in that they not only kind of attack liberal globalism, but also that they pivot to criticizing their own side for war saber rattling against Russia, but also saber rattling against China. And they specifically target the two kind of darlings, um, Hawley and Rubio, the two Republican politicians who are darlings of this new kind of working class republicanism for still being too belligerent and too uh, militaristic in their foreign policy outlook and saying how this is at odds with the new kind of working class conservatism they want to build. And so I thought it was remarkably kind of politically um, critical in a way that is striking for its absence on the left. Because one thing you say, Alex, you know, that the Republicans are more pro-war as part of the neoconservative military interventions. But I think consistently it's the Democratic left that have been more pro-war than even the Republicans. Well, the Democratic center, surely. I mean, it's the Democratic left. It's the Clintonites who have been. The Clintonites, but they were provided, they were boosted and supported by the um, wider left. And the most obvious thing and the, mo- the best example, and we've talked about it before, is Bernie's support for the Kosovo war, right? Being opposed to Iraq is e- was, was and is easy, um, but Kosovo was the real test case. And it's the left's attachment to human rights and their hostility to sovereignty that they're unable to let go of. And that constantly brings them back to support for military intervention. It's something they're simply incapable of letting go. And this is striking to me that the, um, you know, that the it's the Republican, this new kind of working class Republicanism, which seems able to go further than they are. And even more is even intellectually, they're intellectually honest enough to recognize this as a critical legacy of Cold War globalism. So they're willing to even kind of cast doubt on the Cold War project of anti-communism which um, you know goes further than some other kind of conservative foreign policy commentators. Yeah. And so I think that's really that's really striking and important because they go further than the left anti-imperialism. Well, I I, I don't know if it's going further, but it's a different starting point instead of a kind of moral uh, analysis of you know trading off human rights abuses against kind of state sovereignty in terms of thinking about responsibility to protect or humanitarian intervention they're quite clear it's you know it's about material development at home and cultural non-aggression abroad it's kind of you know what is the political the material gain for for domestic working class conservatives you know their constituency or the one that they want to build and so i think that's you know that is it has the makings of a you know of quite a coherent project to the extent that there's a I guess a focusing on like, you know, what's in it, what's in it materially at home, you know, that's, that's the question. And if you ask that question consistently enough, it's a very, it's a very strong political position. It's something, so it goes further than the left because the left, that's what I'm saying, right? So the left would accept corporate globalism as driving, you know, driving American empire. They would accept the idea, oh, we, you know, we're sending working class recruits to die in these crazy military adventures, war for oil and for Halliburton and this kind of thing. But they would always be caught out by the need for peacekeeping, by the need for a multinational military mission that had been properly sanctioned by the United Nations and fell under the terms of the responsibility to protect. And so this is always what brought the left back to war. But and this was evident. I mean, this was very evident in British politics in 2019, um, that there were elements of the woke left that were preparing for power because they thought that Corbyn was going to win, or at least that Corbyn might have a coalition, be in a coalition government. And they were preparing for woke versions 
of liberal intervention. So not the bad military interventions, but good military interventions. And that coming from the supposedly anti-war Corbynista left, right? I mean, I tend to but, I think there's sort of an people, so. there's a sort of ambiguity there, though. I mean, this is a this is a bit of a sidebar, um, but they also got a lot of flack. I mean, Corbyn obviously got a lot of flack for being, you know, anti-NATO. How can you be anti-NATO? And so there was a kind of like, no, we're going to alienate too many working class people if we're seen to be too anti-war, too many anti-national. And therefore, we have to roll back on that. So there's a, all I'm saying is that there's a kind of ambiguity there that isn't that isn't as clear cut as you present. I'm, I'm not trying to defend the left and saying that they are, you know, You're always principally anti-war. No, I'm anti-NATO, but I but the 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 thing was that they had to play a sort of populist card and leave that untouched in the same way that they might decide to like, let's not touch the immigration question. So I'm not, that's but I'm not, so I'm not, I mean, very specifically, there were woke academics who were thinking about, who were very concerned to keep Britain's attachment to the United Nations and to United Nations peacekeeping specifically. So what's my point example? is... So what's, what's an example of this kind of um, woke humanitarian intervention that you're, you're talking about? Because I mean, I'm, I can sort of see that this could be the case, but well, so can you give a... So say gender, you know, one of the big things in peacekeeping is getting women peacekeepers. Um, and that if you supposedly, if you have more women peacekeepers, it will improve outcomes on in conflict. So, you know, they were thinking about how a Corbynite foreign policy would be peacekeeping, support for essentially politically correct military intervention wrapped in the blue flag, right? My point is that the left has always managed to construct trapdoors for its foreign policy in the last 30 years. Right. So they oppose evil corporations. They oppose neoconservative empire. They oppose saber rattling, blah, blah, blah. But uh, human rights would always bring them back in and the United Nations. And this is what strikes me about this piece is that it's more intellectually and politically consistent than anything that has come out of left anti-imperialism in the last 30 years. And as I said before, Bernie voted for Kosovo. And that really tells you just how much the anti the limits of that anti-left imperialism. They will I mean, always yeah, be certainly, back in. I mean, I, I think there is, you know, the, I think that's true. I think there, there are, are sections of the left which are consistently anti-imperialist, no doubt. Albeit that sometimes they often find themselves to be nationalists and therefore just are pro-Putin or pro-China or whatever in, in response. Um, but anyway, leaving that aside, I think one interesting point that to take away from this um, and what, what makes this sort of, I mean, I don't know if it's right to say necessarily working class conservatism or what the right label for it is. Well, it's, what they, it's what they're aiming for. It's what they're aiming for. Yeah, yet. absolutely. But I'm anyway, I'm trying to be objective and trying to find a, an appropriate label for it. But um, in any case, the, you know, sort of national conservatism, whatever, is that they're, you know, they finish off by saying monsters don't lurk abroad. Right. And so it's bringing the talking about contradictions at home. And of course, war has always been, you know, adventurous war has always been a way of avoiding contradictions at home, avoiding politics at home by finding, you know, finding an external enemy. And they're they they they're very critical of the populace. And maybe there's a jibe at Trump as well to say, you know, it's very easy to talk about, you know, lifting up the working class at home. But at the first opportunity, you abandon that in favor of some adventure abroad because it rallies the troops, it rallies rally around That's the flag, point. et cetera, et cetera. Um, and what they're doing is being deliberately political and they're bringing at home. The monsters lurk at home, not abroad. Now, OK, you can interpret that in various different ways. But the point about the point about it is that is very it is politicizing because it's bringing bringing the conflict home. Um, and I think in that, so, in that regard, it should be yeah. it should be welcomed. Yeah, I mean, I hate to, to bring it 
back to Brexit. Well, actually, I don't at all. Um, but, you know, that's one of the things about the EU is like the monsters. The monsters don't lurk in the EU. They lurk in the the decay, the contradictions of domestic um, exhausted democratic representative politics. So, I mean, anything which which I think recenters that <clears throat> that kind of political struggle or that that class conflict on on a more defined scale, that's a good that's a good right. thing. And I mean, which is why the right Brexiteers perform the same error as the kind of. Um, populists that are targeted in this article, which is that they say, ah, yeah, we're against Brussels, all that over there, which is being imposed on us in the same way that it might say, you know, Putin is dominating or taking advantage of us in the global arena. And we need to be strong against that rather than realizing that uh, the enemy is very much at home. That's a very good point. I, I would agree. Yeah. <laughs> um, so there's, one, there's one trick, just I've got one final point, which is I think they missed a trick by leaving. So exemplarism as the kind of model and they link it to um, John Quincy Adams, one of the early um, U.S. presidents. But, um, you know, you could it's also famously in George Washington's farewell address as well. The idea of um, exemplarism, as a, though he doesn't use the word, but that model for foreign policy. But they miss a trick, I think, because they leave the idea of the empire of liberty to the Wilsonian globalists, which is a mistake. Um, because I think there is a way in which you can reconcile that kind of um, vision of the empire of liberty with exemplarism, which is to say an empire, the empire of liberty vision, which was also Jefferson's vision, but without requiring kind of global military crusades all the time. And this is proposed by Matthew Iglesias, and it's one of the very few points on which I would um, uh, kind of uh, defend a policy proposal by Matthew Iglesias. But he said the US should set up a department of accession and that it should absorb new states into the union. Um, beginning with protectorates like Costa Rica and Puerto Rico. And I think that is actually, and you know, um, to expand the United States is actually a brilliant model. Um, and in that way, you could kind of have the exemplarist, kind of the exemplary republic, um, if it could be, you know, I mean, if it was kind of bent on a task of global of self-improvement, at the same time, without sacrificing or leaving the, the vision of the empire of liberty solely to the neocons and the Wilsonian globalists. Ah, I no, suspect the authors of this would uh, not buy that idea, but I, but I don't know. I mean... I guess one 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 question which comes out of this is whether there's a constituency which is kind of large enough to push this forward in in American politics, and maybe this leads us into the. I don't. Sorry, I don't want to to um, have a coup. And That's my job. <laughs> no, no. Go. But maybe it does lead us on to the next article, yeah. just in terms of how like <clears throat> how, is this possible under the current structures of the um, you know the american politics and particularly the republican party that you'd you'd see as the home for this um so i just go into it then the next article i've really fully i've i've, I've assumed control and i don't i don't know what to do with it so yeah second article of the three in the economist it's the second coming of donald trump um who you might or might not have heard of before uh, 8th of um november 2021 so it's a little bit um a little bit older now so the this piece i think is just interesting because it gives a kind of well it's, it's already starting this move towards the midterms this this the spectre you know spectre is haunting america 
specter of um, Donald Trump coming back. The <clears throat> I guess the the way that the article frames this particularly is that you know what what are what are ex presidents supposed to do? They're supposed to just kind of do it do a book tour um, or criticize refuse to criticize their successor and plan a library but as the um author of this so james astell who's the washington bureau chief and lexington columnist um in the economist in washington he says but donald trump does not do background or graciousness or books so pretty pretty severe burn on on trump there from from this author but i guess the the basic idea is that this clearly already, or sorry, this is what I would take from it. There's already clearly some fear amongst the um, American political class that essentially only a health crisis is going to stop Trump because of his uh, egomania, essentially. His own health, no, presumably. His, well, yeah, his own health, we'd, we'd, we'd assume, um, stop him from, from running again. And in fact, you know, most Republican voters are just, just gullible enough to, to vote for the man. So... I think it does seem to me, this would be my uh, my analysis of this, that we're, you know, we're, we're going to have a Trump versus Biden, maybe, if he's still around, Trump versus Harris. Like, I think it the stage is set for, for Trump um, coming back. And as the article pitches it, basically the the kind of the effect of the January 6th insurrection, as they, as they put it, was not to repel voters or repel potential supporters from Trump. So I think this is potentially the way that this narrative is is um shaping up for the for the next presidential election already is you know Trump supporters if they're still behind him after January the 6th then they are um they are authoritarians at best and fascists at worst. What did you guys make of this? Yeah, I thought it was interesting reading it in light of the article that I just brought, because it struck me at how different in temperament and vision in principles, the sort of Trumpians are from what they're often looped together with, which is to say these sort of national conservatives or working class Republicans, because at least the Trump 2016 campaign seemed to presage a change in the Republican Party, which these two things would be one and the same, that Trump would carry forward this sort of um, pro-worker conservatism, right, which would be anti-woke and uh, whatever, but would be anti-war and would be um, in favor of uh, if not exactly necessarily trade unions, but at least in terms of higher wages and reshoring production and, uh, you know, end to bad trade deals, end to NAFTA and so on. And what that brought home to me, at least uh, as The Economist tells it, um, though I'm not, <laughs> I'm not one to necessarily trust uh, The Economist's account of the world, um, is that there, what the big thrust of it is, it's far more reactionary, the, the, the kind of Trump proposal. Um, or at least that it is much more nakedly anti-democratic in terms of trying and much more chaotic in terms of trying to cast out on kind of the elections. And that, and that is kind of its main plank, this sort of um, just basically channeling resentment towards the election being stolen, um, trying to do whatever it's possible to perhaps steal the next election or somehow get, get an angle, the, the voter suppression policies that have been enacted in a bunch of red states and so on. And so anyway, that, that's, what, that's what struck me, I guess, um, which it would be something I think would be pretty alien to the authors of the previous article we just discussed, this idea of like 
you know, this this sort of um, I, I think they would be trying to seek a democratic majority for this anti-war pro-worker conservatism, the authors of the first article. And the Trumpians don't really care about that. I think that's probably right. But I suppose, I mean, what so I mean, to well to add to what's been said, what struck me is just how much The Economist has so clearly pivoted behind the Democrats. And the same is true of the Financial Times. Like if there was ever any ambiguity in the past and there was a fair degree of bipartisanship, um, they have really shedding it um, in their editorial statements. And they're really kind of plumping for the um, plumping for both The Economist and the Financial Times, plumping for the Democrats as the party best able to manage mm. global and U.S. capitalism. And, you know, and it makes sense. I mean, you know, it's the party of the tech of the Silicon Valley, ultimately, after all. Um, the other element is, I suppose, that's important is the so how much is riding on the um, on this idea that Republicans at strategic or Trumpians, to be more specific, at strategic um, strategic locations within the U.S. state apparatus and within the electoral college and the electoral apparatus and so on, will be able to mount some kind of soft coup and manipulate the outcome of votes or block certain kinds of efforts to for vote counting, turn away voters and so on, that they'll mount this kind of coordinated campaign in order to give Trump the election in 2022. And I think it's a, so it's a genuine fear, I think, in those quarters. Um, how realistic it is, I'm not sure. And this is an argument that one of our um, recent guests, Michael Lind, made um, in an article he wrote for the tablet about the fact that they failed, you know, kind of pro-Trumpian appointees didn't behave as Trump wanted them to when he called upon them to make certain calls in his favor in the last election. So he's not convinced that these um, supposed Trumpians will behave in order to just hand over an election to him. Um, but even beyond that, it's still, I mean, you know, the Economist piece concludes by saying that these voters believe the lie that the last election was stolen. And they, if they're worried, they're not particularly worried by Trump's authoritarianism. And that they don't take these kind of threats of the sabotage of the Republic seriously. And it's a difficult, it's so difficult. I think the, you know, there is no getting around the fact that it would be difficult for anyone to take them seriously, given the American voters have been gaslit for the last several years about the election having been stolen by Russian bots, you know, that Trump was a Manchurian candidate on behalf of Vladimir Putin. Um, so the amount of the failure to consistently recognize the fact that both political wings of the US are now um, engaging in kind of preemptive sabotage of the electoral process. Mm -hmm. If you're unable to recognize that, then there is no way to kind of break the logjam of election denialism because so, both sides are engaging yeah. in it full throatedly now. So it's a bit like, you know, they say you can tell what sort of Marxist someone is by what date they think the Russian revolution went went south it's like american politics is like which which election was stolen was it 2016 or was it 2020 and the right answer of course is from the democrats point of view you know it was 2020 um was fine and 2016 was was stolen i mean i think one thing though if if you go into 2024 i mean from a trump campaign point of view and it's still all about the last election being stolen i mean that's like it, Not a it good would look. be it would be a, a sign of, of weakness. And I think the 
like this one thing this did make me think it's maybe it's always been this way and i've only just sort of really noticed it recently but the the weakness and the like just this is the same characters who are coming back again and again in american politics it's like like american tv shows you just can't have a decisive end and then get on bring on some new new characters instead you've got like will hillary clinton come back in 2024 i really hope so um you know you'd love to see a reboot of a of a show that was prematurely and unfairly cancelled um <laughs> and it's like yeah i mean where is the new class of you know well, the new poli- uh, political class in in america maybe in across europe as well that that struck anyway. me too and but also the like sheer kind of vociferousness and agent of chaos that trump is you would think that the republican party would be nimble enough and uh, maybe not, but, you know, nimble enough and inventive enough to be able to absorb some of what Trump brought them in terms of being able to win over certain new constituencies without depending on Trump and without folding, conceding the, the entire Republican Party to Trump, which is what this article suggests has happened. So that also struck me that that weakness that they've just folded to to Trumpism and Trumpism can be a little bit of anything, really. Um, you know, the, the ideological coherence and consistency that we were just discussing in regard to the previous article isn't really there with Trumpism. I mean, you know, the, the Trump of the 20 of 2015 16 is not the Trump of the presidency. That much is clear. And it probably won't be the Trump going forward either. It's kind of culture war, bringing along the evangelicals, even though they're completely unconcerned that uh, uh, Trump is not uh, particularly pious in any way whatsoever. Um, And it's just, I think the the takeaway from it is the general kind of undoing of American politics um, at kind of the end of the empire, which, you know, is striking in regard also to what Phil was saying that, you know, basically both parties are conspiracists and conspiracy theory mongers, both, right? So they're both saying that there's this conspiracy being mounted against them, right? Um, Both sides are doing this. And at the same time, also mounting actual conspiracies, right? To to steal the election or whatever, conspiring against the American public. Um, And it's just amazing what what an absolute shit show American politics is. So, you know, let it burn. I don't know. Yeah. We should, can I do another segue? Yeah, I mean, go. Yeah, yeah. You, you, you if do. American politics isn't looking so good, what about Canadian politics? It's it, the oft-forgotten neighbor to the north, um, <laughs> or something like that. It's not often. That's, mm. that's 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 patronizing towards Canadians. We all like. I know. And we shouldn't. Exist. We shouldn't patronize Canadians anymore. Um, after <laughs> that's the, really true. Actually, because be I was happy us. to. I was happy to patronize them before, but less so now. Um, which takes us neatly, George, thank you very much, to our next piece, which is uh, published in The Bellows. um, The title is As Workers Resist, The Left Recoils, published a couple of weeks ago by the Bellows editor, Edwin Aponte. And it covers, it's an update essentially on, as I'm sure um, our listeners will have heard about, the um, truckers' protest in Ottawa. So this is um, truckers, Canadian truckers, um, who are protesting against the Canadian government's vaccine mandate for people coming in, truckers crossing the border from the US to Canada, having to um, comply with COVID public health requirements. And so the truckers protest, if you haven't come across it already, it stirred a tremendous amount of um, discontent and misgivings, uh, particularly on the online left. Um, And they've been predictably denounced um, by governments 
as well as by many sections of the left as being far right and fascist. Um, predictably, Justin Trudeau, or as we might say, Mr. Blackface, called them transphobic, um, Islamophobic, basically, you know, the basket of deplorables thing. It didn't work for Hillary Clinton um, in 2016. So why Trudeau thought it would work for him this time is, um, you know, is a question. But it's a very useful piece because what it does is it not only kind of talks about the left's hostility to the Canadian truckers, um, including from, you know, some unexpected quarters on the left, mar you know, very kind of marginal um, kind of far left groups have suddenly are coming out to denounce 5,000 truckers in the protesting in the US Capitol as the vanguard of some fascist takeover in Canada, of all places. But in addition to that, it just bundles together a load of protests happening all over the world and has made the case that it is, you know, you can see working class um, resistance to state authoritarianism in, in what's happening, and this is visible. And so, I mean, I take, you know, I think it, it's a very good piece, and I agree with it. Um, and, uh, you know, it's unavoidable, the um, unavoidable to recognize the truth of the left's instinctive hostility to, um, to the truckers' protests. Um, that's very evident. But it, I think even more importantly, what I mean, the significance of it is basically that the the piece vindicates bunger thought. Um, and this is important because it shows that the we still live at the end of the end of history and that we still have these conflicts between liberal technocracy and these um, populist inspired insurrections at the bottom. And it shows basically that there hasn't been that the neoliberal technocrats haven't managed to use the biosecurity regime in order to effect a restoration. Hmm. And so that we still live in this kind of unstable period at the end of the end of history. And that's important. It shows that Bunga thought is vindicated. The Canadian truckers support Bunga thought against Georgist deviationism and heresy. Exactly. And that is the okay. most important right. political outcome of the Canadian truckers protests. The Canadian truckers are with Bunga and Bunga is with the Canadian truckers against Georgia's deviationism. Okay. So interesting. You watch did out say... for, watch out for a man wielding an ice pick. Just to saying George. <laughs> okay. Um, I, I am now worried about that. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I guess just to, just to pick up on that point about restoration, it's obviously something that I've said that the, I think the, the COVID particularly lockdown measures were a very successful way for the ruling class to restore the status quo ante before the um, before the kind of populist threats to, to demobilize people and to, and to manage that that risk of dissent or or working class organization um, and I still you know not I, I mean I think the the Canadian truckers you know I got I've got to take them seriously <laughs> in my very like like niche marginal like idea of this this um this kind of thesis i want to defend but i guess the question is like how um how widespread will these will these protests become i mean we've haven't seen one here in in britain and that's obviously my my starting point we've seen a lot of anti covid um demonstrations plenty of anti anti-vaccine passport demonstrations nothing nothing anti-lockdown demonstrations yeah, but like going on the street and like waving some flags is one thing. Actually, making concerted effort to to disrupt the economy and to show your organised power is a very very different thing, and that's something which we haven't had over here. And you know, maybe we will. Maybe 
we won't though because the the situation seems now to be a little bit different the conservative party seem to be wanting to just get rid of covid and or not get rid of it just like forget yeah, it you know pretend it never happened pretend it never happened and that this massive you know period of of coercion and, and control and whatever would you know never never happen but i mean just to go back to the well, I'm article. glad. I'm just glad you didn't say that they're not really workers, George, because they're owner operators of their own kind of vehicles, and therefore they're you know not really working class. Unlike I don't know, say um, graduate teaching assistants or podcasters or um, NGO workers, for instance, who are obviously more genuinely working class because they're not owner operators and they work for a wage. Her podcasters are owner operators. They own their own yeah, um, that's, that's microphones, <laughs> except in the case of big, big podcasts where they will lease them out. Um, or, or Phil or Phil, who forgets his microphone all the time. Anyway, mm. just needed to get that in there. Anyway, um, no, I think I think this is, a, you know, it is a, it is a, a um, I think there are a couple of things I would say. Just one more narrowly on the the article. And it might sound like a really minor quibble um, with what's a very good article. But um, Edwin writes that the says that the um, working class were previously seen as the most morally dignified political subject by the you know, petty bourgeoisie, the PMC, whoever managerial overclass, as Michael Lind would would put it. Um, and that's I don't think that's right because it wasn't about being a political subject. I mean, I've made this distinction a number of times, or taken this line of Pete Ramsey's, and hopefully repeated it enough that I that I can. Uh, um, be associated with it that it's about being the object of politics that's how the working class have been seen by you know by by left populist um pro- projects across across the globe so the the recipient of maybe material gains or or in need of protection but not as a political actor not as a political subject and that's the you know that's the great sort of potential of the the canadian truckers in terms of you know being political subjects being independent from any organized um, political parties displaying that point around kind of political independence. So, I mean, that's, you know, there's a lot, lot to play for, but I think it's important that, that, that it hasn't been a morally dignified political subject, but rather an object of politics that that's the way working class have been, been seen by um, the middle classes. Though I'm, I'm was not, uh, not shocked by the way that the left responded to this. And I immediately, as soon as you start hearing them, like, oh, they're fascist and far right, I'm immediately more sympathetic to them, because um, I'm a fascist deep inside. No, but because that's just such a cheap accusation thrown by every liberal wanting to diffuse or denounce any kind of popular movement that uh, one should be immediately skeptical. Um, one thing, though, that I that I brought up, which did trouble me, and it's interesting because uh, the author, Edwin Aponte, raises it only to dismiss it, but I don't think it can be dismissed that easily, which is that this idea that the protests there in Canada and other ones um, are, um, you know, that they signify a desire for an individualist a la carte style of capitalist domination. Um, so it's similar to movements uh, for against GMOs. Right. That it's kind of this resistance against this techno medical infrastructure, which is controlling us. And that but that this anti-vax protest is completely different from that and it's completely different from other anti-vax protests. I'm not so sure. I'm not so sure that they I think there's a distinction to be made, but I'm not sure that you can say that they are radically separate or that they are motivated by entirely different motives. I think there's a similar I think, I think there's a similar thread there. What I do think that makes this different 
is because I, because of course these aren't coherent protests either. I mean, in the sense that there there are internal divisions. There's people there who have it's a kind of um, pop up protest, right? It's a pop up thing that has drawn whole ranges of people, all reporting about it. It testifies to the fact that there are people from different walks of life, but also different um, ideologies, and they're motivated by different things, right? Um, and that the, certainly there's a certain anti-vax wing, which has a, a coherent a thread running from it to sort of anti-GMO stuff. But what is different, I guess, here is that the vaccination question has catalyzed and crystallized so much resentment around the lockdowns and the whole COVID thing in general, that um, it, it becomes more about effectively about civil liberties than this sort of resistance to you know new technologies, which look or sound scary right um and i, I mean, think that's i guess that's a difference yeah i mean i i think i i disagree i think we're opening up a fissure here in in Bungathort. um no but i mean like yeah i i, I think that they are coherent they're these the canadian trucker protest they're on on this idea is um of bodily sovereignty it's a material condition of work it's you know that is the catalyzing um yeah, that's the issue I mean, I don't think it is the same as as GM, GMO or kind of other kind of anti-scientists. But the bodily, uh, the, the, the anti-GMO people also not... say bodily sovereignty. Like you can't put these vegetables which have been treated into my body. I'm the one who decides you can't put this stuff in my food. It's not like you have to eat this carrot or you you can't like you can't drive your truck. No, it's I, like if, if you know, it's, it's very different. It's aware about, of, it, I'm aware of that work. difference, which is why I said that there's the civil liberties angle to it, which which makes it coherent and worthy of support but all i'm saying is that there is a thread running through some of these protests which are which have kind of this sort of anti-modernist um thing to it and, and a sort of paranoid view that there's this techno medical thing coming blah 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 right um i mean you might you might not want to recognize it because you want to find some good people to rally behind but you have to recognize the contradiction and right. everything including those no, George who... George is making up for well, his then... deviationism to the people, which is, you know, we should respect his effort to try and kind of humble himself before the people and admit his fault. But if there's contradictions in everything, then there's contradictions in what you were saying, Alex. So, like, you know, anyway. But no, I think the... <laughs> the, the What was I going to say? Um, yeah, I mean, I, I think the, the, the point around bodily sovereignty is is very different to in this case than it is in um some of the other the cases that you mentioned because it is so closely linked to work it's so you know it's the context of of covid but there and isn't the, but look i mean the mobilization of incoherent is important it is an incoherent con bodily sovereignty you know i mean you can talk yeah, about bodily do. autonomy but itself you know i mean and so you know it's gesturing towards uh, kind of a civil liberties thing. And I'm sure, you know, I don't doubt Alex is right that there is, um, you know, that there are strains of um, paranoia and conspiracy theories. And to be fair, they've not been, you know, um, the powers that be have done their utmost to amplify them <laughs> by being so coercive in their approach um, to vaccines by institutionalizing vaccine mandates. They've done everything as well as, you know, the kind of the bungs that they've given to big pharma. They've done everything they possibly can to alienate anyone who might be um, hesitant or cautious about a newly rolled out medical product. But that notwithstanding, I mean, my main takeaway from this is the hatred of the left is, you know, the frothing, the, in, the, um, the extremity of it uh, to see 
um, to see people who uh, on whom you know working class in the very basic sense that society depends our sophisticated consumer societies depend on the logistical efforts made by people to provide and deliver certain kinds of goods for us. Um, complete hatred mm. to see it, any political self-assertion by them. And that is, I think, the most striking thing, irrespective of, you know, the different strains that are shot through in the in the um, in the protests. And, but, and, it's, know, and it's striking because some of the more strategic thinking on the left has precisely seized on logistics workers as the, yeah, some of the only true. leverage that the well, left, I wouldn't call it, that, wouldn't call you know, that radical forces. Precisely for that reason. Well, so they like to think of themselves as strategic. But right. Okay. But they, not. but they have identified, you know, logistics workers as some of the only points of leverage over the global economy and national economies that we might have. And, um, and, and then to then turn one's back on it. Uh, yeah. yeah. And to be fair, I mean, you know, I've seen pictures of the Canadian protests with um, on the front of the trucks, not anti-vax, anti-vax mandate. And so I'm sure it's not lost on many of the protesters as well, the difference between those two things. So I'm not by any means going to um, tar all the protesters with the same brush of being kind of paranoid conspiracy theorists. I'm sure they're no, not. No, of course. Of course. But I don't think I, all I'm, I, and I'm not trying to do that either. I'm just saying we should also recognize the opposite side and say, no, these are all this is a coherent thing that has been organized and they're all on the same page and that they all believe the exact, I mean, I, you know, I have it on good authority that some of the organizers have, um, you know, very kind of paranoid and paranoid views, nostalgic views about defense of Judeo-Christian civilization and whatever, you know, so that all I'm saying is that because it's, and we use the term populist and that, what that signifies in this context is that there is an incoherence to it. I totally support their opposition to vaccine mandates. I, but, I disagree. I don't think it's incoherent. I think actually there is a central cohering point about, uh, you know, you might think that this this phrase doesn't make any sense, but about bodily autonomy, about being anti-vax mandates. And that is... I said it, bodily sovereignty makes no sense, oh, not whatever. bodily autonomy. Don't, oh, it's whatever. the different thing, because okay. sovereignty is something that can belong to a political collective. It's not something... Bodily sovereignty is neoliberal consumer politics. Yeah. However... The point that I was going to make is that, you you know, given the number of people there, if there are two people with a Confederate flag and, and one person with a swastika and who knows how those flags got there in the first place, I don't think it's I think I don't think that's sufficient to say these are incoherent, heterogeneous, like whatever. I think it's a fairly clear demand as far as i understand it but that but george but apply apply the same lens that to what you would to you know anti-globalization protests right they you wouldn't describe those as coherent but they often cohered around a single demand in many of those specific protests so the, the, what I'm, and, and yes and what i'm saying is that even the question no, of bodily autonomy but bodily autonomy he's going but, no because anti-globalization they wouldn't you know it wasn't like reverse globalization Whereas no, but they had. There, there were some specific. Okay, but okay, but uh, maybe it's but maybe it's not the, the best example. Coherence, but the lack of coherence, I think, is to say that you know it's not organized. It's not politically led. Um, it doesn't have a political organization kind of um, structure. Yeah, and, and it's not ideologically, and they're not. They probably don't have ideologically consistency with it. Uh, you know, across it, right? Yes, yes they have. They cohere the, around the question of bodily autonomy, but even that can spiral well, off into various different political directions. That, they cohere around being opposed to vaccine mandates, right? So I mean, yes, there is yes. coherence to that. No, extent. I, I, I exactly, I agree with that. What I'm just saying is that there isn't like, um, oh, there's this clear ideology that they represent. There isn't that. 
I think that would be, it would be crazy to expect there to be that in these times, as we've mentioned a whole bunch of times. And in fact, that today's politics often demands supporting things which aren't ideologically consistent or coherent because they because that's where we are you know so what i'm um, getting from this is then between georgia's deviationism and alex anti-populism the best position is essentially the bill position the right? third way politically <laughs> that no. seems to me the that seems to me the logical conclusion of our discussion here actually there was one other point that i wanted to make though just in terms of this like accusations of, of fascism um, and, you know, it might be a bit old news by now, but the the frequency with which this this phrase is, is thrown around, I mean, it's so, um, I think it's almost, I don't want to kind of, get, you know, go too far, but it's almost like anything which is called fascist, which it isn't actually a party of fascists, this is kind of a good thing. Like if, if that's how it's described, um, in the media you're like actually yeah this is this is this is probably has some degree of threat to you'll, you'll, like you'll to end up you'll end up quote. you'll probably end you'll up end more up right you'll probably, yeah exactly you'll end up more right than wrong in many in maybe a majority of cases but you will end up very very wrong in certain cases so you know i don't know if it's a great saying, rule of thumb 60 percent of the time it works every time um yeah, no but i think like, like there is something about like the use of like the more worried the petty bourgeoisie get, the more they reach for the, the fascism thing. But to it's throw. not the petty bourgeoisie. It's it, well, it, it, the it, like you know that I like to use that word. In but, a, it's, in but, a but it's but it's yes, but it's wrong. Way. So it's it... <laughs> anyway. Um, no, but like it's there is something. Sorry, I'm I'm trying to sort of make a semi-serious point here, which is that the like that's when you can see there being a, like an element of genuine threat or like a recognition on the part of the the commentariat that or whoever that something is is dangerous because it's called fascist when it's obviously not fascist it's bad for them but they can't articulate why and they think it's because it's organized and there's organized power there that's my like that's my my crude point there we go no fair point fair point taken um okay we i think we will leave that here uh we are back with a bonus bonus uh at the end of the month so uh if you hated what you heard here you'll i'm sure you'll let us know and we'll respond to it then uh also next week coming out we have an episode with michael lynn so if you liked our discussion in the first two-thirds of this about american politics and about the kind of new right well i guess it's the new new right which is to say this kind of uh, conservative communitarian, right? Uh, we have Michael Lind, who is a, a leading light, I guess, who could be associated with some of that thinking. Um, very interesting interview there and uh, and, dis- and follow-on discussion that we had about it. So um, that will be next week. We'll see you then. Catch you later. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.